Welcome to Why Advice, a regular podcast aimed at financial clarity and demystifying financial advice. In this episode, myself and Peter Mansell have a discussion about investment philosophies. And it's a really important topic because every financial advisor needs an investment philosophy and every investor needs an investment philosophy. Because if you have an investment philosophy, you have an established set of rules guiding your investment decisions. So decisions are made ahead of time and you're not reacting in the moment. An investment philosophy is a topic you'll never hear discussed in the media. In contrast to having a set of rules, making a decision on your direction, and essentially following that path by doing nothing, the media has a new idea for us every day, which means more distraction and more calls for us to take action. The end result is they can sell advertising and brokers can make money on our trades, but in the end it's not a lot of benefit for us as investors. So on top of our previous episode on protecting yourself from fraud, we'd hope this is a valuable source of information that offers some clarity in making better investment decisions, whether that's finding a financial advisor or looking for ways to be more disciplined in managing your own investment portfolio. All right, welcome, Peter. Good to have you back. Hi, Daniel. All right, today, so we wanted to talk about investment philosophies, and and you've had a lot of uh, experience uh, building investment philosophies, and I just wanted to want to go through the importance of investment philosophy, the importance of an advisor having an investment philosophy, and the importance of an evidence-based investment philosophy. So I just thought we'd start off with what I find is a really good quote. Uh, by David Booth, who is the co-founder of Dimensional Fund Advisors, and he says, the most important thing about an investment philosophy is that you have one. And I think that statement would probably stop a lot of investors in their tracks, because if you put it to them, they probably couldn't give you an answer on what their investment beliefs actually are. So just throwing that over to you, what is an investment philosophy? Look, I think it's vitally important for every investor uh, that they follow an investment philosophy. There's no question about David Booth being right in the statement that he made. Uh, but certainly after 40 years, my observations are that, that most people that self-direct with their investing, and, and indeed many that are advised, have actually got no clear-cut philosophy that they follow. Um, they actually don't have... Uh, a set of beliefs that underpin their investment actions um, that are likely to deliver any sort of reliable result. Uh, Over the years, I've seen people that have got a a mishmash of all sorts of investments uh, and they've got individual reasons for buying each one. But at the end of the day, no coherent structure that underpins the collective of of all of those investments. Each individual purchase can be on a whim at a particular time. It can be because of an idea that they've read about. It can be because a mate told them about it or a family member. Uh, But ultimately, when you you step back from it and sort of take an X-ray view of that portfolio of assets, there's no coherent structure to it. There's no underlying set of beliefs and certainly no evidence to support why it should be successful. So I, I think having an investment philosophy is absolutely vital and something that the average person just doesn't get. And, and, and to be fair to most investors, that's not unreasonable because it's not their forte, it's not what they know. 
Sorry, it's not what they know. You know, at the end of the day, I know very little about heart surgery. Um, so, you know, I think it's best that, that people accept that there's a great deal of knowledge needed to underpin an investment philosophy. And most people never spend the time or have the inclination to develop one that's based on any evidence or has any reliable chance of success. Yeah, it's interesting when you get back to that, that point, all these people were building, uh, not so much building, but they almost stitching a patchwork quilt because they'd come across some one thing and then they'd add that and then they'd come across something else and they'd add that. And at the end of the day, they don't really have so much as a portfolio. But as I said, they've got a patchwork quilt that they have uh, and there's no rhyme or reason behind any of it. Yeah, and, and probably the, the worst outcome of that in the long run uh, whilst individual investments that they might select, some might do well, some not so well, some might be great, some might be terrible. Um, but, but worst of all is that it's not implemented with their goals, aspirations, needs, desires you know, in mind. It's not built around what's important to that client in terms of their lifelong achievements that they want to attain. And, and I think that's the biggest concern with self-directed portfolios or portfolios that are cobbled together in a haphazard way over time with no coherent structure is that the investments aren't actually uh, put together, the building blocks aren't constructed together with a clear set of goals and aspirations in mind. Right, so drawing back to the, uh, the original um, point there, so what is an investment philosophy? If you, you were just talking to someone and they didn't, you say you need an investment philosophy, it's, as we said with the first quote there, the most important thing about one is that you have one, but someone says, what is an investment philosophy? What would you say? My personal view is that uh, if, we, if we step past the haphazard, you know, cobbling together of a, a disparate bunch of investments that anyone might, you know, choose to buy at any point in time, and we said, well, what are the sort of investment philosophies that actually prevail, you know, across the globe today? And I think they basically fall into three categories. Uh, I think that there is there is a very large portion of, of investment approach and, and investment management across the globe is dedicated to what is termed active investment management. So whilst there might be an underlying target for the asset allocation of the portfolio, which of course is synonymous with the risk that the portfolio actually takes. Uh, but the underlying premise is that some professionals, whether they be at the fund manager level, the advisor level, the stockbroker level, call it what you may, um, is fundamentally making predictions about where they think financial markets will go and indeed how assets might perform within those individual investment markets. Um, as I said, traditionally that's referred to as active management. It revolves around having an opinion about the future, some form of forecasting that, that might be based on you know, detailed analysis, uh, but at the end of the day, it relies on the ability of some humans 
albeit often with complex computer modeling behind them, making some sort of prediction of the future. And, and that, that methodology is still used you know, across the world today largely, and it's heavily supported by the media and obviously heavily supported by the advertising campaigns of the organisations that actually undertake that sort of investment management. Then separate to that, uh, many years ago, and it's probably going back something like 50 to 60 years ago, there were the development of the first what we call index portfolios where um, through detailed modelling, a, a series of assets are purchased uh, into a portfolio deliberately trying to track the average performance of all the assets on a, on a market-weighted basis within that particular asset class. The most sort of commonly noted types of these portfolios are share index funds. So a global share index fund would follow the market-weighted performance of all the stocks, say, in the Morgan Stanley Capital International World Share Market Index. And, and what happens there is that the investor that buys into that sort of strategy is going to get the average performance of the market weight of every asset in that index. Of course, that's assuming the index funds deliver what they promise, and traditionally they do. Um, so you're getting the average weight of return. Your investment is going to follow, if you like, all of the money in the market with no predictions. Index funds or index portfolios are run on a very inexpensive basis. They're extremely cheap, vastly cheaper than actively managed portfolios. Um, and the investor at least knows they're going to get the market-weighted return for that batch of assets, whether it be shares or property or fixed income securities. Um, they'll get the average market-weighted rate of return. Our, our own particular views, that's a good place to start because it involves no forecasting. The, the interesting thing about index funds, uh, from, from my perspective, uh, relates to work by Nobel Prize winner uh, William Sharp. Um, quite a few years ago, uh, he, he wrote a paper called The Arithmetic of Active Funds Management. Yep. And, and he basically looked at all of the participants in the share market across the world, whether they were the, the fund managers that liked to forecast or whether they were the index managers. And, and he, he made the observation that the index result was the aggregate of all of those participants, good, bad, or indifferent. And then he pointed out that if you take the index managers out and assuming they get the index rate of return, what you're left with is all the active managers and on average, they also get the index rate of return. But alas, because of the higher fees that they charge, less than 50% of active managers actually achieve the average rate of return or the rate of return of the index in the, in the longer run. So it was arithmetic, arithmetically certain that it was a less than 50% chance that active management would be successful. So that's why we believe index management's a good place to start. And then probably over the last uh, 30 or so years, um, there's been a lot of work done in a small sector of the investment management community uh, of building funds and portfolios that are driven by factors that have higher expected rates of return and, and have historically displayed 
higher expected rates of return over long periods of time. And these sort of portfolios are based on the works of people like Eugene Farmer, Nobel Prize winner, Professor Ken French from Dartmouth College in, in, in the USA, and, and of course, you know, underpinned by the work of Harry Markowitz in relation to diversification that goes right back to the 1950s. But these uh, factor-based portfolios or evidence-based portfolios have over long periods of time traditionally delivered the index rate of return plus a little bit extra. Uh, yep. Investors over long periods being rewarded for taking the risk of using those factor-based portfolios. So fundamentally, our belief is that there's effectively three types of investment philosophies or beliefs uh, that one might follow. And, and that is active, index, and, and evidence-based. And, and our view is that investors should start with the index portfolios as at least having the right to earn the average rate of return that markets provide. And then, by utilising factors that have strong evidence supporting their both historical and prospective returns, uh, they can aim for just a little bit better than average. And in the long run, that's a really good result. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because actually the other day I was, I was going back through some of the, some of the results and obviously we know that uh, values had a little bit of a struggle um, in, in recent years against growth or, or the index, but uh, I looked out through the decades, just, just using the US as an example, US value um, from the 1930s through to the end of, end of last year, 12.65% return, US growth, 9.32 and uh, the S&P 500 9.82 so obviously you see there over a long period of time had you tilted your portfolio towards value I don't have the, the small cap uh, number on it but I believe that's even higher um, just as an example there as you what you were saying you, you bring in um, those factors and they do have the potential to deliver you a higher return when they show up Absolutely. And look, fact is they don't show up every year and you alluded to it at the beginning. In the last couple of years, um, value stocks have been relatively unloved by the market yep. or more accurately, uh, growth stocks or you know, highly priced stocks have continued to be sought out by many an investor. Historically, that has happened in the past numerous times. You know, if we go back in the United States, as you point to, there's really reliable data going back to 1926. You know, that's yep. 94 years of data. Um, and at times, value has significantly underperformed. But in the long run, uh, value or the relative price of a stock, stocks that are, if you like, unloved by, you know, investors, uh, will eventually deliver a higher rate of return. And it actually makes sense because for an investor to buy an unloved stock, the only reason they would do it, assuming they're at least being partly rational, is they expect to get a higher rate of return. And historically, that's what's happened. So, yeah, we're, we're absolutely uh, of the view that the factors do deliver, but you have to have a long-term time horizon in mind to be willing to support them. And at times, they won't deliver. But when they do, they deliver in spades and your average return in the long run is significantly higher. Um, our own Australian and global equity portfolios, which you alluded to also, 
um, target smaller sized companies rather than just large companies. You know, over the last 36 years, our Australian equity portfolio has beaten the market by about 1.4% per annum. Uh, the global equity portfolio by about 2.4% per annum. Um, so the evidence is certainly there over long periods of time. Uh, the factor-based approach or the evidence-based approach, it does work. You just need to be patient and make sure you're taking a long-term time horizon. If you look back over those decades, um, the 30s, value is bad. Then you had to wait again, uh, just on a, on a decade basis. Then you had to wait again until the 1990s until it was um, it underperformed uh, growth in the S&P 500. And then uh, last decade again. So that's only three decades since the, the 1930s. But in, in those decades, there's obviously going to be small periods where, where it does underperform. But when it, when it shows up, it's extremely powerful. Indeed, absolutely. Now we've talked about that, I guess the next point is why uh, we, we've done, done some work on, on our investment philosophy recently and I didn't sort of, I obviously knew about what it was, but I didn't realise the extent of the work that goes into the document behind the scenes and this is obviously something that uh, an advisory business has to take a lot of effort to, to formulate. So why would you say that the document or the, the set of principles are so important to advisors as opposed from just investors? I think it's vital. Uh, firstly, uh, everybody that, that gives professional advice, it doesn't matter in what field, they need to have substantial knowledge to underpin the advice that they're going to give to uh, a client that they might look after. If, if you think about it um, from, say, a medical specialist point of view, you know, um, I, I jokingly alluded to, you know, a heart, heart surgeon earlier, but a person that goes, you know, out of high school, goes off to uni, does medicine, becomes a qualified doctor, goes and does the training to become a cardiologist, and then the specialist training to become a cardiac surgeon. Um, it's years and years of knowledge gathering, information gathering experience to be able to say to, you know, a, a physically frail individual, we need to do this to make you healthy. From an investment advisor's perspective, you know, whilst um, the barriers to entry might not be quite as high as becoming a heart surgeon, at the end of the day, the advisor's got to gather together an awful lot of knowledge, an awful lot of experience, um, evidence that backs up why they're going to recommend what they do because financially they've got to try and save that investor from their worst you know personal instincts you know investors by and large over over my four decades in the uh, in the industry have shown some terribly harmful behaviors to themselves not that they wanted to uh, but often their emotions just get the better of them. So an advisor, you know, that's looking after that client's best interest, you know, brings knowledge, experience uh, to the table to help the client make sure that they make the right sort of decisions to get the right sort of outcomes in the long run for themselves. It's absolutely vital that the advisor have a clear set of principles, a clear set of beliefs that'll underpin the the advice that they'll give and, and be able to assure the client that they'll be taking sensible steps with a high probability of success so that they don't end up financially ruined. 
So our investment philosophy is, is probably uh, 30 to 40 pages. Um, at a high level, uh, how would you describe our investment philosophy or just in the, in the key points, just so someone knows what, they're, what they would be to look out for? I think the, the couple of really important points in that, they're, they're very, very simple. Um, number one is that we will only take risks with a portfolio that we genuinely understand. And, and no investor should take risks with their investment that they don't understand. Um, secondly, to, to make sure that they have reasonable expectations of, of how their portfolio should perform. That is, that they understand the risks that they're taking, they understand the volatility that that's likely to bring you know, from time to time, and that their expectations are such that they're realistic. I gave the example a minute ago that you know, with, with our, our equities portfolio over some 36 years, when, when you blend the Australian and the global together, you know, the extra performance above the market has been about 1.8 to 1.9% per annum higher than the market. Our view is that's a really, really good result. But if that weren't good enough uh, in terms of an expected outcome for a prospective client, then they shouldn't invest with us at all uh, because we'd be likely to disappoint them. So having realistic expectations, absolutely vital. So I think that number one is only take risks that you understand. Number two is broad diversification to make sure that you don't take excessive risk. And number three would be to make sure that you have reasonable expectations uh, that the portfolio that you're putting in place will display the return and risk characteristics that you're expecting, both on the upside and the downside. Inevitably, downsides happen, and, and for investors that remain patient, that becomes a thing of the past and prosperity arrives again. All right, so how did you come to form the, the FYG investment philosophy, which is obviously the, the guide for Mansell Financial Group and, oh, sorry, yeah, and the others in the FYG group? What was the process behind that? I think, firstly, I'd just like to go back into history. Um, there was a time, you know, because of traditional teachings, mm. uh, that we thought the answer to portfolio management was using active management. There was a time where we paid a fortune to research companies every year to try to help us understand who the prospectively better active investment managers were going to be. Yep. And we built our portfolios around blending those active managers to the best of our ability. You know, and we use correlation coefficients and charts called snail trails um, in the attempt to try and you know, get our clients a better result. We absolutely were doing the best that we could at the time and the best that we knew how according to traditional teachings. Uh, what we ended up concluding, and this goes back to around the year 2000, was that we ended up with roughly the performance of index managers, but clients were paying higher fees. So in fact, just a bit below the index. And that was quite disappointing. So we started to look for better ways, you know, and uh, finding uh, the work of academics like, you know, Eugene Farmer Senior, Ken French, going back to the foundations of Markowitz and Sharp and the like. And, and we came to the conclusion that certain things were absolutely vital to getting clients better results. Number one was not trying to predict the future. 
Number two was drive costs down, and, and that's where index managers and, and, and factor-based managers uh, came into their own because they're a lot less expensive than using active managers. Um, and, and we stopped paying for all the, uh, the damn independent research that, that ultimately just ended up filling our garbage bins for all it was worth uh, and, and emptying our, uh, our business checkbook. Uh, so those to me are, are, are the key things uh, in terms of how we got to where we are now. Uh, and ultimately, we're just much happier because the amount of evidence, the supporting data that underpins the approach we've got now, you know, it's really robust, it's really lengthy, goes back decades and decades uh, and, and, and gives us immense confidence uh, that will get better results prospectively. Um, if we just look at the roughly 20 years that we've been using the approach we, we use now, every client that's been using it and all of the clients that Mansell Financial Group do have got better results on a relative basis over this 20 years than we did in the previous 20 years. So when, when you were doing all the research there and buying all the research, was there a process that uh, I've heard other advisors say we were shifting, the research would come out and say, this, this, these guys are going to be the, the next thing, uh, or they're looking backwards almost. So last year, these guys won. So then you shift your money to those guys. And then in the year ahead, they, they failed out, perform the market again. Was there a process of moving, moving from almost like a whack-a-mole uh, exercise? Uh, yeah, there was a bit of that. Uh, I think that to, to try to be fair to the research firms, um, yes, they would look at historical results, but they were trying to make predictions of, of which managers were likely to outperform. So here we had a group of people that weren't fund managers trying to analyse fund managers to predict which of the people that were making predictions would be the best at it. So it was effectively a prediction about a prediction. Right. And, uh, and ultimately... It just didn't work, you know, without, without wanting to uh, belittle any one particular institution. I just recall so vividly one major financial institution in the late 1990s um, that the research firms were saying, yep, these are the guys that have absolutely got this nail. They're going to be the winners going forward. And what a debacle they turned out to be from about 1998 to about 2002 uh, when we, we just absolutely gave up on them completely uh, and, and they've subsequently gone out of business. Uh, so you know, it's, it's really looking back, it was really about someone trying to make a prediction about someone else's predictions. Um, so I guess it was, you know, guessing squared and it didn't go well, didn't go well at all. So what sort of rules did you have back then? Um, obviously, before you, you settled on evidence as the guide, did you still use um, asset classes and, and, and stuff like that? You're building portfolios that way or? Uh, it was a bit of both. We certainly used a lot more diversified managed funds then, um, trying to give those active managers making their forecasts uh, have the opportunity to benefit to the greatest extent from their forecasts. Well, with hindsight, we were probably taking, you know, we we're definitely taking a less than optimal approach. Um, but the bottom line was their forecasts about individual assets or actual combinations of asset classes were really no better than, I, you know, than each other. So it really wasn't, uh, as I said, a great outcome. It was basically 
index funds minus the management fees and and a less than you know a less than average option uh, too frequently. The occasional client got lucky because of market timing or just when they invested and when they, or when they withdrew. But ultimately, you know, we concluded that, that the overall results were just average and nothing more. So it's almost uh, consistency versus inconsistency, really. Categorically. Uh, and I, I think back to, you know, the way uh, we would blend those managers together. You know, we'd go and find the highest rated funds uh, that were recommended by the research houses, and then we put them through, you know, a correlation analysis, which of course all that did was look backwards. Um, so, ironically, we were relying on two very unlinked things. Number one was a research firm's guess of the future as to who would perform, and then looking at those managers and seeing how they'd correlated on the past, oh, sorry, over the past, uh, to see how different they were. But but now I look back at that and go, well, the two things are completely unrelated. You know, one one is an alleged view of the future and the other is the, the revision mirror. Um, and and yeah, it, it just I, I look back on it now and go, well, it was it was what we were taught to do um, by, you know, the educators, the research firms of the day and the like, but it really wasn't successful. I notice there's, there's almost some sort of uh, reformation for advisors when they come around to the, the evidence. Um, have, you, have you noticed that? They're like, it's almost fervent in the beliefs and then it's like a, there's a post and there's a, oh, you know, a pre and a post. And Absolutely. Uh, because, I, you know, you look back uh, and, and I've got lots of faults, but luckily so far one of them's not memory. Um, <laughs> and and I, I think back to... Uh, the days of the 80s and 90s and I just think wow even with the best of endeavors then it was still largely guesswork now it's not guesswork it is that we'll get the market rates of return in the long run we'll do just a little bit better than that hopefully to more than cover the cost that a client actually incurs along the way certainly more than what our fees are along the way and they'll at least get that market rate of return, which is there for all investors to have. Um, but sadly, many don't get it. In fact, a large majority don't get it. So would you say two, two benefits of, of an advisor using an evidence-based investment philosophy is um, business efficiency, um, because you don't have to uh, worry about, as you said, you're spending all this time running models and, and looking backwards and boring over the research. And then... Um, also being able to talk to clients about what we know and what we don't know. Two, two parts to my response there is, yeah, look, in terms of business efficiency, it's vastly better and, and it's vastly better from the perspective that, that a mature firm like ours that's been serving clients for 40 years, um, we know what every client's portfolio looks like. So every client's being treated consistently according to the level of risk that they are willing to take or the level of risk they need to take for the circumstances that they're in and the aspirations they want to pursue. Uh, the second part to it is that the bottom line is we don't have the resources to do the detailed analysis going back, you know, 30, 40, 50, 90 years, um, we're vastly better off to leave that to academics uh, that have got 
the time to do it because it's all they're paid to do. They don't have to advise clients. They've got the capacity to go and actually do the delving into the data to really understand uh, what's reliable and what's not. And then we can utilize the evidence that they actually uncover for the benefit of our clients. Yep, we're paying for that. And ultimately that factors into the costs that, you know, that clients bear, but we're better off to use that, you know, professional academic research um, than, than to do a haphazard job ourselves because the end result is we don't have the time and resources uh, to be able to do it. And, and on, the, on the talking to clients issue? Yeah, look, I think the fact that you've got that evidence, the fact that you know where it's come from, it's from a reliable source, it's not being promoted by you know, an institution with a vested interest in the outcome, it gives you enormous confidence to be able to support clients to make the right decisions, you know, for their best interest in the long term. So, in that instance, so it, it obviously allows you to tie it back to investor, investors' goals, because then you, you're targeting uh, risks um, instead of looking for chasing returns. Hundred percent. Yeah, chasing returns uh, over the last forty years to me has been shown to be absolutely forlorn effort. Uh, the market rates of return are what an investor can reasonably expect to get over the whole length of their lifetime. <coughs> if they're using an evidence-based approach, our view is that they'll get those market rates of return after all costs and maybe have a little bit extra left over. And that's a really good result. And so our view is that investors should definitely pursue that approach and they'll feel more confident about their investment decisions and their actual investment choices will actually be aligned to delivering the outcomes that they need to live the lives that they want to live, doing the things that they want to do, spending time with the people they care about. So you obviously still have a lot of contact with advisors outside of the F, but just advisors around the, or in the community, or not the community, but around the country um, from being in the FYG group and trying to recruit advisors to the group. Um, so in that instance, how many would you present an investment philosophy to and they would respond that, you know, oh, this is, well, ours is obviously evidence-based and they would respond, oh, this is interesting. They haven't seen something like that before. And how many others would you, would you come across who are almost flying by the seat of their pants without any, any, any form of consistency there? Uh, yeah, there's definitely a proportion of both. Uh, the number of advisors that are looking for a more evidence-based approach to investing is definitely on the increase. No question about that. And the number of advisors uh, that are still wanting to support uh, active management and people who make predictions definitely on the decline. Certainly the number of advisors who are happier using index portfolios, definitely on the rise as well. In fact, uh, very definitely on the rise. So I think that the, the first uh, group that, that I referred to earlier in the uh, discussion of, uh, in terms of active manager supporters, uh, declining rapidly. Uh, index managers definitely on the increase and, and factor-based uh, portfolio construction supporters definitely on the increase as well. Uh, for some, it's quite an epiphany um, and, and almost, you know, the, the light bulb moment. For some, it's sort of a gradual evolution from active to index to 
uh, evidence-based um, and, and it's a gradual transition. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of unlearning there that you've got to go through first before you actually come around to it, isn't there? Yeah, and, and, and of course, too, you, when you get to the point that you make the leap of faith that you're going to change approaches, then, of course, you know, you're going to watch like a hawk thereafter to make sure that that, that new approach actually appears to be doing what it's meant to do uh, for all of the clients that you're going to serve. Uh, and, and that, of course, you've got to wait for time to pass for it to be reinforced. You know, I was very fortunate, you know, basically for the first 10 years of, of uh, the use of the evidence-based approach, it worked very strongly. And, and so it reinforced the beliefs. And, and I'm fortunate, of course, as I said, you know, having a reasonable memory, I don't lose sight of that first 10 years when, of course, the next 10 years has not been nearly as good, um, but I've still, if you like, uh, reinforced by what happened in the first instance and all the longer-term data that goes before that as well. Yeah, so it's, it's almost like uh, if you have the process correct, and the, 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 it turns the, the attention back to the process over anything else, doesn't it? Because if you do the process and you've done everything and your decision-making is correct, um, then you've done all that you can do um, because the result is always generally going to be uncertain. I mean, we know that uh, when you're using a factor-based approach, um, things will show up. The returns may not be always be there. They may show up at some time, but you're more focused on the process than actually chasing returns. Absolutely. Because, because chasing returns inevitably involves trying to predict what's going to deliver the return you know, in, the, in the immediate period ahead. But nobody knows what that's going to be. You know, none of us have got a crystal ball that actually works. Whereas if you do implement an evidence-based portfolio approach and you do it consistently and you do the simple but necessary things like rebalancing and staying disciplined when markets are unkind and all of those sorts of things, over time, the results just deliver. You just need to give them the time. Uh, anything other than that is, is just haphazard guesswork. Yeah, because right now too, it's it's always important to have investment philosophy. But in times like this, when people are scratching around for returns because the, the risk-free option just isn't there anymore, uh, you know, you're going to see a lot of people probably get themselves into a lot of trouble uh, now because they don't know what to do. They don't have a set of rules and you know what are they going to do if they can't get an easy rate at the bank or are they going to chase dividends or and it's the same thing with advisors. You know, sometimes you read in the press that uh, journalists are talking to advisors and they say, oh, now they're hunting around for this next big, well, not next big thing, but they're hunting around for the next place where they're going to find yield. I can't imagine if that's, that's how, what you're doing with your clients. It must be incredibly frustrating for your clients where you've got to go back to them all the time and say, look, uh, that's, that's not working anymore. We've got to go to this thing. Yeah, look, I couldn't agree more. Um, and it comes back to some of your very basic beliefs with investment philosophy, and that is, you know, you've got to accept the fact that a safe part of someone's portfolio, for it to be actually safe, and by that I mean, you know, capital stable, if you like, um, they're going to get low rates of return. 
you know, on a relative basis, whether it's the current really low cash rate or the cash rate that existed five years ago or five years before that, it's still a low rate of return on a relative basis. You know, and, and the drivers of portfolio returns are equities and property. You know, they always have been when, when you look back, you know, historically, and they always will be going forward. So it's, it's the risky part of a portfolio, the one that will fluctuate routinely, as shares inevitably do, certainly. Uh, that's where you get the bulk of your return from in the long run, and you need to accept that. Uh, only this week, I, I had a meeting with a young man uh, who's, who's not actually a client yet, um, but to try and get a better rate of return he actually lent $200,000 to a mate um, for a, a scheme that was going to work really well. But on the basis that if he needed the money back to put back into his business, he could get it. And of course, when he needed it, when COVID hit, what happened? The money wasn't available. Yeah. It damn near sent his business broke because he didn't have the working capital to run his business, despite the fact that he had oodles of work to do, you know, men employed, jobs on hand, all of that sort of thing. But his cash flow, you know, and he, his, his working capital was was gone. And, and now he's ended up in a situation where his mate is giving him back $2,000 a week over two years, but he doesn't have the $200,000 of working capital uh, and he's ended up having to borrow money against his house, you know, a terrible decision because he was lured into this high rate of return that he'd get every month. Um, sad story about a mate. I guess his uh, mate didn't have an investment philosophy. <laughs> he didn't have an investment philosophy. I'm sure that his mate was making some pretty big predictions about where he might get his returns from. And maybe his mate's crystal ball was as foggy as most others. And that's the whole point too. At the end of the day, you need to be able to ask someone what's the evidence behind this. And if, if they can't come up with it, it's like we always say, there's, there's evidence and there's stories. And yeah. In the absence of evidence, everybody's view is just an opinion. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. All right, Peter. Um, it's pretty good chat we've had there. It's uh, gone on longer than I expected. So <laughs> I didn't have to do all the questions. I guess we started off with, uh, with talking about uh, David Booth there. And we came across a, an interesting story uh, recently. It was in the Austin Statesman, I believe, about his, his art collection. You're a bit of an art aficionado. What do you think of, what do you think of that? Oh, look, I think it's a wonderful story. Uh, I've been lucky enough to meet David and spend time with him over the years. Um, you know, he's been an incredibly successful man and a very generous man. Um, his art collection, uh, which is, um, you know, spread throughout his home uh, in Austin, but also across his rather, you know, substantial property, uh, when, he, when he no longer takes the opportunity or has the opportunity to live in that home or, or indeed, you know, continue to hold that property in his own name. You know, he's going to donate the that to the community of Austin. What a wonderful asset it'll be to the community, you know, uh, an art museum, you know, that, that'll have in it, you know, Rodin's, some of the most famous sculptors uh, around the world, some of the, some of the you know, the best of arts. Uh, my, my, I'm just trying to think. I'm having a bit of an, uh, a mental blank. Uh, there's a Picasso and some other art uh, of, of the masters. You know, the, the people of Austin, Texas, and those that visit will have a wonderful asset, you know, for that community and incredibly generous of David to do that. And, and when you think about it, 
you know, his, his tremendous success on a personal level over, year, over the years has largely been driven by the success that he's created for others uh, off the back of the evidence that's been gathered, you know, by he and his colleagues, you know, that underpin the, uh, the investment uh, management business that they've created over the years. So, you know, the people of Austin and others that visit, you know, are effectively enjoying uh, something that came from his success, but that was driven by the success of those that he served. This podcast is for informational purposes only and the information contained is of a general nature and may not be relevant to your particular circumstances. The circumstances of each investor are different and you should seek advice from a professional financial advisor who can consider if particular strategies and products are right for you. In all instances where information is based on historical performance, it is important to understand this is not a reliable indicator of future performance. You should not rely on any material on the podcast to make investment decisions and should always seek professional advice. The hosts and guests of the podcast may have positions in securities mentioned or discussed. Mansell Financial Group is an authorised representative number 226266 and credit representative number 403187 of FYG Planners Proprietary Limited, AFSL ACL number 224543. Thank you for listening to Why Advice.